Hey, everybody. Hey, Mr. Drew. Hey. Y'all doing okay? Yeah. Yeah? Kind of? No, no response? No? Just whatever. I asked if you were okay. Yeah, we're doing really good. How about you, Mr. Drew? That's good. I'm okay. I'm hanging in there. My bad. You speaking French? Speaking French? No, no. I speak English only. I speak American. But I speak. Not even English. All right, so as you can see from the screen, we are looking at the book of Psalms tonight. Um, but before we get started, let me go ahead and address something on the front end. Um, Psalms, or the book of Psalms, or the Psalter, as it's sometimes referred to, is a collection of individual Psalms. So when we look at the book as a whole, it's referred to in the plural as Psalms. But when we look at an individual Psalm, it's referred to in the singular, right, as one Psalm. So for instance, we refer to Psalm 1 in the singular, Psalm 37, Psalm 110, right? Please do not refer to individual Psalms in the plural, right? We don't do that for anything else, do we? Right, we, uh, for instance, we don't use hymnals anymore, but a hymnal is a collection of hymns, right? If we had a hymnal and I said, open your hymnal to hymns seven, right? We wouldn't say that. No, we're referring to just one hymn, right? Does that make sense? And so in the same way, right, we don't, we don't refer to things in the plural, right? If we had a, a book of chapters, we wouldn't say turn to chapters four. No, it's just one chapter, right? Are y'all tracking with me? Yes, sir. Right? So when we say, when we, when we speak of the Psalms, and we speak of an individual Psalm, we just refer to it in the singular. So I just wanted to take care of that on the front, and that's a pet peeve of mine when people refer to, like, Psalms 110. I know it's a bit difficult because, like, for instance, the book of James, right, ends with an S. And when we refer to James chapter 1, we, go, we just say James 1. So people think Psalms chapter 1, it's Psalms 1. It's not. It's just an individual Psalm because it's a collection of multiple Psalms. Does that make sense? So, anyways... Like I said, that's just a pet peeve of mine, kind of like when people refer to the last book in our Bible as Revelations, <laughs> rather than, yeah, rather than Re Revelation, right? It's just one. There's only one revelation of Jesus Christ given to the Apostle John. It's not multiples, right? So in the same way, it's only one individual psalm. It's not multiple psalms. Of course, when we're referring to multiples, we can refer to it in the plural, but each individual psalm is referred to in the singular. So now that we've got that out of the way... Um, Let's get into this book. First things first, who can tell me what is a psalm? Anyone want to take a guess at what a psalm is? The poems that David wrote. The poems that David wrote? Okay. Who else? I was going to say song. A song? Okay. Any other guesses? Like a song of praise. A song of praise. Okay. All very good answers. All technically correct answers. Any other guesses? All right, so the textbook definition of a psalm is a song that is set to music. That's all it is. So essentially, it's just a song. Now, I know that seems kind of weird given our um, sort of culture, our sort of historical context. We don't really uh, have songs that aren't sent to music. But historically speaking, uh, there were several songs that were written and in several songs, the primary instrument that was used were voices. There was no guitar that was being played behind it. There was no organ. There was no band. It was just sung with people's voices. And so a psalm in particular is a song that was 
written to be sung with musical accompaniment. Does that make sense? Now, specifically, when we refer to Psalms as Christians, we're referring to the Psalms that are in our Bibles, right? The 150 Psalms that are in um, the Old Testament. Um, but the basic definition of a Psalm is simply a song that is set to music. So now that we have sort of a, a basic understanding of what a Psalm is, let's sort of drill down and focus on what exactly this book is, right? So what is this book? The book of Psalms is a collection of prayers and songs that were offered by the people of Israel to God. The Psalms were written by several authors over a period of about 1,000 years, ranging from the time of Moses up until the return from the Babylonian exile. It is unknown who actually compiled all of these Psalms and put them into one volume, right? If these Psalms were written over a period of 1,000 years, then we would not have a complete Psalter until the end of that period, right? Or until the last Psalm was written. So uh, we don't know exactly who collected all of these Psalms and who put them all into, um, into one book. Now, that said, um, there has been some speculation throughout the centuries. Uh, for instance, John Calvin uh, said in his commentary that he thought that it could have been Ezra who grabbed all these psalms and put them into one volume for the people of Israel. But like I said, it's just speculation. We don't actually know for sure who compiled all of these psalms, who put them all in one book. But at the end of the day, we do know, right, who compiled all of these psalms for us. And that was ultimately God, right? By God inspiring these psalm writers, to write these psalms, God was putting together the psalms that he wanted his people to have. So even though we can't trace who the human compiler was, who the human collector was, we ultimately know and we can be confident that we have the psalms that God wanted us to have. Does that make sense? And so most of these psalms, all right, about 75 were written by David, right? There's several different authors. Uh, 75 of them were written by David. Actually, only 73 are attributed to David. Um, there's two of them that don't have an author listed, but we know from, uh, I believe it's the book of Chronicles, uh, that these songs were written by David. So these songs were taken from Chronicles, and we know that ultimately the inspiration, if not the actual author behind these songs, was David himself. So in total, we have 75 that were written by David. Uh, two of the psalms have Solomon listed as their author. Psalm 90 is a prayer that is attributed to the patriarch Moses. And there are also several psalms that are ascribed to several Levites and priests who were responsible for sanctuary worship during David's reign. Specifically, we have 12 psalms that are attributed to Asaph and his family, and 11 psalms that are attributed to the sons of Korah. There's one psalm attributed to Haman the Ezraite, who was written about in 1 Kings. And there's one psalm also attributed to Ethan the Ezraite, again, uh, also written about in the book of 1 Kings. And after that, we have 48 psalms that have no author listed. But similarly to the compiler being unknown, even though we don't know who the human author was, we do know who the ultimate author was, right? And who was that? What? God. Yeah, absolutely. God is ultimately the author behind these psalms. So even if we don't know, okay, well, who is the human that wrote it? We don't need to know that. We know that God is the author of the scriptures and he has given us this book. And so if we know who the human author is, great, good for us. If we don't, we don't need to know that because we know that we have God's word. And so a couple of things. The book of Psalms is organized into five books. And we have book one, which covers Psalms 1 through 41. Book two covers Psalms 42 through 72. 
Book three is Psalm 73 through 89. Uh, book four is Psalm 90 through Psalm 106. And book five is Psalm 107 through 150. Um, and if you look in your Bible, you'll see uh, they should have at the top of each of these, right? At the beginning of Psalm 1, it should say book 1, right? And then at the top of Psalm 42, it should say book 2. So you can see this breakdown um, of these books. How many of you um, are familiar with study Bibles? A few, kind of. Well, I brought my study Bible here with me tonight. This is the ESV study Bible. And I'll hand this uh, out here in just a second so y'all can kind of take a look at it. But the way that a study Bible is laid out is in this top section here, they will have the text of Scripture, right, which is what you'll find in every Bible. But then underneath it, they'll have some notes. And those notes will be notes on a particular verse, perhaps notes on a particular word and what it means or what the word behind it, uh, the Greek word behind it is and what it means, what the implications are of it. Sometimes it'll be uh, notes on a particular phrase or a particular cultural context that helps bring to light what actually is being communicated um, in the text. And so let me, let me give this to you, and you can kind of hand it around and take a look at it. And if, you've, if you're familiar with it, you don't have to look at it. That's up to you. But I cannot recommend to you enough the use of a study Bible in your Bible study. Um, in particular, I really like the ESV study Bible. The Reformation study Bible is another one I use. That's what I have on my phone and computer. The John MacArthur study Bible is also very good, except for when he talks about eschatology, then he gets kind of weird. But um, other than that, it's fantastic. But uh, the reason I'm saying this is because one of the interesting things that study Bibles have, uh, in addition to the notes on particular verses and whatnot, um, is that at the beginning of each book, they will have you know, anywhere from three to ten pages on information about this book. When it was written, who wrote it. Uh, what was the occasion or what was the surrounding circumstance that led to the writing of this book? What the purpose was of this, uh, of this book? Sort of how does this book fit in the larger context of the scriptures? Uh, well, how can we see Christ in this particular book? Um, and so if you don't have a study Bible, I recommend it. Obviously, if you don't have a Bible, you need to get one. But if you don't have a study Bible, I'd almost say you should probably get one of those too. It can be very helpful. But again, the reason I say this is that I'm going to read for us an excerpt from the Reformation Study Bible. And they kind of uh, explain the breakdown of these five books, right? So we see that it's split up into five books, but why? What's sort of the theme of each of these books and how are they connected? And here's what the Reformation Study Bible says in their introduction. They say this, book one begins with the inauguration of the Davidic covenant in Psalm 2 and ends with the promises of Psalm 2 coming to realization. Book two ends with a covenant of kingship being transferred to Solomon from David, who is a type of the blessed man in Psalm 1 and a type of the messianic king of Psalm 2. Book 3 ends on an ominous note. The first psalm of book 3 uh, complains that the righteous suffer. And the last psalm of book 3 laments that the Davidic covenant seems to have failed with the king's crown rolling in the dust. And Psalm 88 Right, which is in book three, is the only psalm without praise. The remaining books answer the question burning in the hearts and minds of God's, uh, of the post-exilic community. How are we to live in the absence of the Davidic king? Book four replies that we live by faith, that the Lord is still king in spite of the evidence to the contrary. Within this book, Psalms 93 through 99 are called enthronement psalms. And they look to God's reign on the earth. And book five replies that we live with an obedience that focuses on the true worship of God 
It begins by thanking God for his bringing Israel back from exile and includes Psalms holding up David as a model for piety, as well as Psalms predicting the reign of the Messiah. And again, that comes from the introduction to the Reformation Study Bible. And so you can kind of see that, you know, it isn't arbitrary why they broke up these psalms into these different books. But, these, but not only do individual psalms communicate certain things, but the way they structured it also communicates something. We see sort of the theme beginning with the King David sort of going to King Solomon, and then we see it sort of dissolve as the kings that came after Solomon uh, did not follow after Yahweh, right? We covered that in, in First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, right? Um, and then... Uh, after book three, we see, hey, even though we don't have an earthly king, right? Even though we don't have a King David or a King Solomon on the throne, we still are going to worship God for who he is and for what he has done. And so um, within the Psalter, we have several different types of Psalms that I'm going to cover for us real quick. Uh, we have hymns, which are composed for when times are well. And hymns are typically characterized by an exuberant praise of Yahweh. We have laments, which is another type of psalm. And these are composed for when all is not well, right? And they are often characterized by a, a raw emotion that is experienced during a time of great difficulty or sorrow. Um, you can think of a lot of, a lot of David psalms where he's, where he's crying out to God in, in distress, right? Th those would be characterized as laments. There are thanksgiving psalms. And these are hymns, uh, similar to hymns. However, they have a particular focus on what God has done in history. So it's not simply a general praise um, of Yahweh, but specifically for what God, Yahweh has done, for instance, in leading his people out of Egypt, right, in the Exodus, or in bringing his people into the promised land. It focuses on particular historical events and praises God for those. Then we have Psalms of confidence, and these Psalms kind of fit somewhere in between uh, laments and Thanksgiving Psalms. And while Psalms of confidence are authentic and honest, about current circumstances, uh, they have an overarching tone of trust and confidence in the Lord for deliverance, uh, rather than the raw sort of emotional tone that most of the laments have. And then there are kingship psalms. Uh, kingship is a very important concept in the psalms. And typically you'll either see the uh, sovereign king, Yahweh, as the subject of the psalms, or even some earthly kings such as David or Solomon as the subject of the Psalms. But, um, but even with that, right, even with this sort of important concept that sort of uh, is, is really permeates the entirety of the Psalter, uh, you do see some Psalms have a, a peculiar and intense focus on kingship, whether it be the divine kingship of Yahweh or on the human kings such as David or Solomon. And so they kind of have been classified in their own genre. They kind of get their own classification because they are so particularly focused on this idea of kingship. And then lastly, we have wisdom psalms. And these are psalms that share particular characteristics uh, with some of the wisdom literature, like uh, Proverbs or Ecclesiastes. And so uh, with that, they, as I was going through this book, yeah, you can just put it down right here. That's fine. Thank you. Um, I'm going to be honest. This book was a really tough one to sort of summarize in one night. Because as you can already see, there's a lot of themes in the Psalms, there's a lot of history that's covered. There's a lot of um, different categories and different genres of the Psalms that we, you know, we could spend a lot of time. To be honest, we could probably spend, I don't know, uh, probably the next five years and not really exhaust 
the Psalms, right? If we, if we just spent the next five years diving into this book, we would not exhaust it by any stretch. Uh, but as I worked through the Psalms, um, there were really a few key themes that I think were ever-present throughout all of the Psalms, regardless of, of which one um, you look at. And the primary theme that we see in the book of Psalms is that God is infinitely worthy of our worship. If there's sort of one thing you can take away from the Psalms, it would be this, is that God is infinitely worthy of our worship. In fact, as I've already mentioned, every Psalm has some sort of praise in it, except Psalm 88. That's the only one, right? Out of 150 Psalms, we only have one that doesn't have some sort of praise tied to it. Even the laments, right, where David is lamenting his situation, lamenting um, the circumstances he's in, he always looks to God in praise, regardless of his circumstances, right? So we see that the praise of God is the primary theme throughout all of the Psalms. And there's really two primary reasons for this that I can see. Um, and obviously we can kind of tease this out in a number of different directions. But the two primary reasons we see that God is infinitely worthy of our worship, the first one is for who he is. Primarily for who he is as the sovereign creator, right? Um, and I'm just, I'm going to survey for us uh, a handful of psalms that kind of illustrate this point for us. Um, I'm not going to ask you to read this. I'm, we're going to have some, some stuff that we read later on. But if you want to write these down and, and look at these in your own time, I think that would be worthwhile. The first one is Psalm 19. Psalm 19. In Psalm 19, we see the beauty of creation testifying to the glory of God. The reason that we marvel at a beautiful sunset, right, or the view from the mountain's peak is because these things are reflecting the glory of God. And so when we look at creation and we see it reflecting God's glory, we see that it reflects God's glory because God is worthy of worship as the creator. Psalm 96 is another one. And in this one, we see the people of God proclaiming his excellence among the nations. And we even see the creation bringing forth praise, testifying to the majesty and power of the mighty King Yahweh. And this psalm concludes with a hopeful anticipation of the coming of Yahweh to judge the world. And we know that Yahweh has come, right? The King of glory from Psalm 24, he has entered into our realm in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Psalm 104 is, uh, is another one. This psalm uh, is a psalm of thanksgiving and praise, and it specifically focuses on God's mighty acts of creation. So, um, this psalm is proclaiming the majesty, the wisdom, and the goodness of God in the creation of the whole world. Often, when people think about their relationship to God, when they think about worshiping God, they think, well, I don't believe in God, so that's why I don't worship Him. Or, I'm not a Christian, that's why I don't worship Him. But the reality is, is that God is the sovereign creator. So whether we like it or not, he's worthy of our worship, right? We've talked about the creator-creature distinction before, right? You have not God in one category, and then you have God in the other category. Simply by virtue of God occupying the God category, he's worthy of our worship. And simply by virtue of us occupying the not God category, we owe him worship. And so whether we feel like it or not, whether, you know, we can, we can say that God's been good to me, which we're alive, right? So we know that God's been good to us. The truth is that simply by virtue of being his creature, he's worthy of our worship. Uh, psalm 139 is another one. Uh, in this psalm, which is a psalm of David, David is recognizing the fact that there is nothing that escapes God's knowledge. 
He knows all things because he has decreed all things. There is nowhere, there's nothing we could do to be outside of his knowledge and there was nowhere we could go that would be outside of his presence. We even see in this Psalm that God's knowledge goes back to even before our birth. David says in verses 13 through 16, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Again, in that, in that one verse we see, because I have been made by God, God is worthy of my worship. Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, you saw my unformed sub substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. Again, in this psalm, we see explicitly, you know, first of all, we explicitly see the dignity and humanity of life inside of the womb. We see that in the same way that God formed Adam from the dust. He formed each and every one of us in our mother's wombs. We also see that all of our days were established by God long before we even took our first breath. Now, we speak about God's sovereignty a lot here at this church, and so this concept does not come as a shock to anyone here. But a lot of people bristle at this idea that, of God's sovereignty. They bristle at the idea. I mean, David says it. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. God knows all of our days. He knows everything we're going to do from the moment we're born to the moment we die. Not because he's some supercomputer that's able to calculate everything, but because he has decreed all things as a sovereign creator. And so we see that as sovereign creator, as sovereign and creator, God is worthy of our worship. And lastly, Psalm 148. And this Psalm is, is, um, is calling upon all of creation to worship Yahweh. From the angels in heaven, to the highest mountain peak, to the creatures in the depths of the sea, to all the peoples of all the earth, we see a resounding call to praise the Lord. Again, we see that the purpose of creation is worship. Well, why are we here? Why are the trees here? Why are the bugs here? Right? Why are the fish here? Why are the bears here? Everything on the earth, everything in all of creation is meant to worship and glorify God. That's the purpose for why we're here. That's why God made us. Now, we don't do that because of sin, right? Because we're sinners, because we're dead in our trespasses and sins, because our hearts are desperately wicked. We don't worship God. But the truth is, is that we're supposed to. God is worthy of our worship. And we know from Scripture that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the Father. So even though we live in a day, right, that is, can be characterized by sin, that can be characterized by, uh, you know, people um, just engaging in every form of sin and depravity, we know that a day is coming when everything will be rightly ordered and it will worship God the way he deserves to be worshiped. So we see first that God is infinitely worthy of our worship for who he is as the sovereign creator. But we also see throughout the Psalms that God is infinitely worthy of our worship for what he has done as the sovereign redeemer. <clears throat> and in a certain sense, right, the Psalms um, were written about particular events in the life of Israel. And a lot of the redemption that is uh, written about is specifically the redemption of Israel throughout their history. But all of this is serving in, in a typological fashion as a foreshadowing for the redemption that the Messiah would ultimately bring in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So even though we see some particular, 
uh, acts of redemption in the Psalms that were particular to the people of Israel, we know that they are anticipating the ultimate act of redemption that was accomplished by Christ on the cross. And so where do we see it? Specifically in Psalm 66. This Psalm um, uh, moves from God's work of provision to his work of redemption. We see specific instances of God's mighty acts throughout this Psalm. Turning the sea into dry land so that his people may cross through on foot. Bringing his people into the promised land. The psalmist uh, focuses on God's corporate redemption of his people. And then he moves to his own personal response of worship in light of what God has done. So we see, again, God is worthy of our worship for who he is, but also what he has done, particularly his acts of redemption. Right? Who parted the Red Sea so that the people could cross on foot? Right? That was God who did that. Right? Who brought his people from the wilderness into the promised land? God is the one who did that. And we see that highlighted in this psalm. Another one is Psalm 77. Psalm 77 is a lament that, and this particular lament was written from the individual perspective on behalf of a community. Okay? And in this psalm, the psalmist is lamenting the discouraging condition of Israel and even begins to question whether God's promises will be fulfilled. How many of us have been in a situation like that? Where perhaps something bad happens, something tragic happens, something difficult happens. And the first thing that comes to mind is, man, where's God? God said he promised good for us, but look at our situation. That's a natural question to ask. But in this psalm, right, as the psalmist is wrestling with doubt, he begins to contemplate God's past works of redemption. Namely, in particular, the Exodus. And he remembers God's deliverance of his people in the past. And he looks to the future, hopefully, knowing that the same God who delivered his people then will deliver his people once again. We see an important principle here that often when we're in the midst of difficulty, we can't see past what's right in front of us, right? And in those moments, it's important to remember what God has done in the past, right? When we are faced with a difficult situation, we go, I don't know how I'm going to get through this. But think back to your salvation, right? The same God who made me alive, the same God who took out my heart of stone and gave me a heart of flesh, he can pull me through this difficult situation, right? And we, again, are driven to praise because of what God has done in the past, knowing that he will accomplish his purpose to the praise of his glory in the future, right? And we can, be, we can rest confident in that. Psalm 99, uh, and this psalm is a kingship psalm that celebrates the rule of Yahweh and praises him for his holy and righteous rule. Uh, this psalm differs from previous kingship psalms in that it is directed specifically towards the people of God in distinction from the surrounding nations. Now, while we can and should proclaim the praises of God to the nations and call upon them as his creatures to worship him, right? We've, we've talked about that. Regardless of, of who you are or where you've been, you owe God worship. God is worthy of your worship because he created you. And while we boldly proclaim that salvation is found in him alone, it is appropriate to turn our focus on God's redemption of his people. And worship him for the privileges that he has afforded us in adoptions as sons of God. So does that make sense? Often when we think about the gospel, when we think about taking the message of God um, to the peoples of the earth, sometimes we lose sight of the fact that God has done some specific things for us as his people, right? We see this sort of, um, we see this played out in the life of Israel, right? Israel had a unique relationship with God. They were in a unique covenant with God. They experienced God's rule in a unique way. And so it was appropriate for them to not simply um, 
not simply praise God for who he is, although that is absolutely appropriate. Sometimes it's appropriate to praise God for specifically what he's done in my life. And there's specific things that God has done in your life that he hasn't done in mine. And there's specific things that he's done in my life that he hasn't done in yours. And it's appropriate to thank God. Thank you, God, for giving me this job. Thank you, God, for bringing so-and-so into my life. Thank you, God, for allowing me the ability to buy this new car, this new guitar, this new whatever, new Xbox. What's, what's the new Xbox? I was about to say 360, but X, that, that, Xbox 360 is old, right? I don't remember what the new one is. But anyways, right? We, we can thank God. We can thank God for the specific things he's done in our lives. That's absolutely appropriate. And we should be doing that really on a daily basis. Psalm 103 is another one. This psalm opens with an exhortation to bless Yahweh. And as the psalm progresses, we see the psalmist praising God for his grace towards himself in particular. We see the gospel in several places throughout Psalm 103. And in verses 10 through 12 in particular, we read, He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is the steadfast love. Uh, is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. For as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Right? And we know that this is true because God has dealt with our sin on the cross at Calvary. Because of what Jesus Christ has done, God does not have to deal with us according to our iniquities or repay us according to our transgressions. Right? Christ took the penalty for our sins. Right? He took the payment that we owed. We owed our eternal death, our eternal torment, our eternal punishment for the sins that we committed against an eternal holy God. But Christ took that for us. So God can deal with us bountifully. He can deal with us in blessing because of what Christ has done. Psalm 105 focuses on God's specific works towards Israel throughout their history. It starts with Abraham, then moves through Moses, through Joseph, through Joseph, then Moses, and then uh, through the deliverance of Egypt and bringing his people into the promised land. Here we see uh, it's important to never lose sight of redemptive history. And what we continually bring to mind, what we should continually bring to mind is what God has done, the mighty acts of redemption that God has done throughout the ages. And sometimes this can be done, right? We can join in with Israel and praise God for what he did to Abraham. We can praise God for what he did uh, in, in the life of Joseph. We can praise God through, uh, because of what he did in the life of Moses because as uh, children of Abraham by faith, that's part of our heritage. That's part of our, our history too. But again, it's also appropriate to do this in the context of families, right? It's important for fathers to pass down to their children. Here's what God did in my life. And as much as you praise God for what he's done in your life, we praise God for what he did in my life. Because had, had God not brought Abraham, we would not be here, right? Had God not called your father, you would not be here. And that could be physical fathers or that could be fathers in the faith. But we should never lose sight of what God has done, not just in big picture history, but also in our individual histories as well. Uh, Psalm 111 is another one. And in this one in particular, uh, we see praise ascribed to Yahweh for his works of provision and for his works of redemption. And in particular, uh, in verse 9, it says he brings redemption to his people. Right? What does God do? Well, he brings redemption to his people. And because he brings redemption, we praise him. Psalm 147 uh, is a psalm of David, and in this one we see David crying out to the Lord as he endures persecution. And he prays for God's deliverance. In verses 5 and 6 we read this, I remember the days of old. I meditate on all that you have done. I ponder the works of your hands. I stretch out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you 
like a parched land. So in this lament, right, David is expressing his frustration. He's crying out to God because he's enduring persecution. And what is he driven to do? He's driven to remember, to remember what God has done, what God has done in his life, what God has done in the life of Israel. And we see, once again, this important principle of remembering what God has done for his people in the past. Both victory and defeat have the potential of pulling our attention away from the glory of God. So we need to follow David's example in the psalm and remember what God has done in his providence, right? Providing for us our daily needs, right? Give us this day our daily bread, right? We're breathing in and out, right? God is providing us air so that we can exist. We need to remember what God has done in his provision as well as what he's done in his redemption. Not only does he provide us with life, but he also redeems us so that we may experience new life. And then lastly, Psalm 147. In this particular psalm, the psalmist is praising God for his rebuilding of Jerusalem. And given the content uh, of the psalm, it is likely that it was written after the Babylonian uh, activity during Judah's restoration. And we see praise for God's power, for his goodness, for his wisdom, and governing over the whole creation, as well as his particular grace towards his people in restoring them to the land. We see again this combination of praising God for who he is, right? He's the sovereign creator. As the sovereign God, as the creator, he's worthy of our worship. But we also see worship for, who, for what he has done, specifically as the sovereign redeemer. And so we as God's people, we as new covenant members, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have further cause to worship because of what God has done to save us in the person and work of his son, Jesus. And so we've seen now kind of the overarching primary theme. And like I said, we can kind of, we could really tease that out in a number of different ways. Um, and we would probably never exhaust all that's in the Psalms. But if we could sort of sum up what's, what's the Psalms getting at, you know, in, in you know, in, in one thing, right? It's getting at the fact that God is worthy of our worship. And we see that he's worthy because of who he is as the sovereign creator God and for what he has done as the sovereign redeemer. And so with that, I want to now shift our focus a little bit um, into how we can see Christ in the Psalms. And so there's two primary ways that we see Christ in the Psalms. The first way that we see Christ in the Psalms is typologically. Um, I know that we kind of hint at typology here and there, um, but uh, have we ever spent some time talking about what typology is? Does everyone understand the concept of typology in the scriptures? Yes, no, maybe. Need, need some help with that. Well, um, throughout the Old Testament, right, we are introduced to several characters. We are uh, taught about several events and even several institutions that, serves as, that serve as types or foreshadowings of the antitype, which is Jesus Christ. So in typology, you have types and then you have the antitype. And the antitype is what's sort of represented by all of the types. Does that make sense? And that's kind of different from the type versus the archetypes, right? In, in, um, if you had an archetype, basically all the types were modeled after that type. But with an antitype, all of the types are pointing to the one type. Does that make sense? I know it seems somewhat archetype convoluted. behind, antitype in front. Yeah, that, yeah, that'd be a good way of remembering it, is that the archetype is sort of behind, right? And everything that comes after that is based on the archetype. Whereas the antitype comes at the end and everything, all the types are pointing to it, right? In one way or another. So 
Uh, for instance, King David, right, is a type of Christ. While David was a real historical person, right, who actually lived, who actually was a king in Israel, David serves as a type of Christ, right? David was a man, Christ was a man, right? David was king, Christ was king. David was a shepherd, Christ is the good shepherd, right? And we, we can see the typology in the similarities between David and Christ, but we can also see it in the differences, right? David was a sinner, right? All of us are familiar with the story of Bathsheba, right? Right, he committed adultery with this woman and had her husband killed so that he, he could cover up the fact that he got pregnant. Right, that's, I mean, that doesn't sound very Christ-like, does it? But we can see, right, we can see this typology even in the differences, right? Where David failed, his failures point us to the ultimate king who would never fail. Does that make sense? Uh, another one is, is events like the Exodus, right? The, the Exodus, the event of the Exodus, serves as a type for the work that was accomplished by Jesus on the cross. So as, with Jesus as the true and greater Moses, right, Jesus would not simply free a single generation from uh, uh, the oppression of slavery. Rather, he would free all of God's people from their slavery to sin. So we see, we see some typology from the lesser to the greater. We see it in some similarities, but we also see it in the differences. And so throughout the Psalms, we see uh, a, lot of, a lot of typology of, of Christ within the Psalms. And so again, I'm just going to survey a few of these, and then we'll spend the bulk of our time talking about, um, talking about my last point. So Psalm 45 is uh, a good one. And this Psalm 45 is a unique psalm because it's a wedding psalm. Um, in fact, in the, in the title, in much of the Psalms, it'll say this was a psalm written by David uh, when he was fleeing from Saul in the cave. Uh, this is a, a mascal of the sons of Korah. And in this one, it says, I believe it says a, a, a uh, psalm of the sons of Korah, a love song. And this is the only love song we have in the Psalter. And the closest parallels we have in Scripture to this psalm are the songs that are written in the Songs of Solomon. Uh, and Calvin, John Calvin, uh, said that it's pretty well established that the subject of this psalm was King Solomon. Right? That this psalm is referring to King Solomon and the love he had for his bride. But we also see some typology, right, between the joyful and proper, prosperous marriage of the king and the marriage of the ultimate king, Jesus, to his bride, the church. So, uh, and we see this comparison made throughout the New Testament as well. So as we read Psalms like Psalm, one, or Psalm 45, which is a wedding psalm, we as believers should have in mind the supper of the Lamb. We should have in mind the wedding feast of the bridegroom, Jesus, to his bride, the church. Psalm 47 is another one. And this psalm centers on God's rule over all the earth. And again, while Israel was in a unique covenant with God, and they uniquely had an experience that was different from the rest of the nations. We see uh, in that psalm there is no mistaking that Yahweh is not just king of Israel, but he's king over all the earth. And th uh, in particular, uh, this psalm finds its most appropriate application to the person and work of Jesus Christ. In the book of Daniel, Daniel is given a vision of the Son of Man. And he says that Solomon, like a, the Son of Man, coming to the ancient of the days, and he was presented before him, and he was given authority, a, a dominion, rule, and a kingdom. 
And we see that Daniel is referring to the ascension of Christ, right? Jesus ascended to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And in his ascension, he was given authority, rule, and dominion over a kingdom that covers all of the earth. And so this song that's celebrating the rule of Yahweh, right, which covers all of creation, is most clearly seen in the rule of Jesus Christ over all the earth as the King of kings and Lord of lords. Psalm 72, uh, it looks to God for the prosperity of the king and his kingdom. And this song in particular was prayed over the human kings in Israel. Uh, but we see several things throughout this psalm that anticipate the messianic king. Um, in particular, uh, we see in verse 8, right? Uh, May he also have dominion from sea to sea. Which, which Jewish king had dominion from sea to sea? And from the rivers to the ends of the earth. Right? There was no Jewish king except Jesus. Right? And in verse uh, 11, uh, and let all of the kings bow down to him and let all the nations serve him. Which king, which, Israel, which Israeli king had all the nations serve him and all the kings of the earth bow down to him? None of them except Jesus. Right? And then in verse 17, it says, may his name endure forever. May his name increase among, uh, increase as long as the sun shines. Let all the nations be blessed in him and let all the nations call him blessed. Of which Jewish king can we say that was true? Of none, except for Jesus Christ. So we see, even in this psalm, right, that was directed towards earthly kings, we see that there's an anticipation of one who would come, who would endure forever, right, who would be blessed forever, who, in whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed, right, and that was King Jesus. Psalm 93 is a kingship psalm that celebrates the reign of Yahweh over all creation. And in this psalm, we see a juxtaposition between the power and might of Yahweh and the power of the raging seas. In ancient times, the sea often represented uncontrollable chaos, a chaos that had the power to destroy any who came in contact with it. Yet this God, right, in Psalm 93, this reigning king over all, he has the power to overcome the seas. And even the waves obey him, as we saw in the life of Christ. So as the sovereign creator, there's nothing that is greater than Yahweh. And as the sovereign creator, there's nothing that is outside of his control. And again, we saw that demonstrated in the life of Christ, right? Jesus is in the bottom of the boat sleeping and his disciples are like, we're going to die. And what does Jesus do? <clears throat> Be still. And the wind and the waves obey him. This uncontrollable chaos is still at the word of Yahweh, at the command of Yahweh. Psalm 101 in this psalm, David is king promises to rule over Israel righteously. And in this psalm, David promises to obey all that God commands and to justly punish wickedness. Now, we know from history, as well as from scripture, that David did not live up to this psalm. Right? He says he will rule righteously. Did he rule righteously? Sometimes yes, but like fully, completely? No, he didn't. He said that he would obey all that God commands. Did he obey that all God commands? No, he didn't. He was a sinner. And he committed some pretty egregious sins. Did he justly punish wickedness? Sometimes yes, but sometimes no. And not only that, but we look at all the kings that came after David. Solomon and all of his sons. Right? We know that all of them were sinners. And all of them were terrible kings. And so, um, even though David, though, right? David continually repented of his sin. Um, unlike many of the kings who followed after him, the, the fact is, is that their failures, right, the failures of David, 
the failures of the kings that came after him, they served as the backdrop for the coming Messiah. Right? Like we've already said, we see typology and similarities, but we also see it in the differences. We need a king who's not going to fail us. We need a king who is going to rule righteously, who is going to obey all that God commands, who is going to punish wickedness justly. And all of that is fulfilled in the person and work of Christ. He's the only true David, the only true king. Psalm 121 is another psalm that celebrates Jesus. Uh, specifically, it celebrates Jerusalem as God's chosen city and the joy of journeying there. Specifically, we see the joy of worship in, in Jerusalem as well as the celebration of the king's throne. Now, in the new covenant, right, we know that God's dwelling place is not in a particular location, right? Like Jerusalem, right? In the old covenant, where was God's presence? All of you should know this. Where was God's presence? In the, uh, in the ark, right? The ark is what represented God's presence with his people. So wherever the ark was, that's where God was, right? Now, but so in the new covenant, though, where is the temple of God? Y'all should know this one, too. Y'all are making Joe real sad. Yeah. Say it. Inside of us. Right. In the hearts of his people. So while there is while, while in this psalm, we see a um, right because in different parts of Israel's history, the Jews were scattered and they would often make pilgrim pilgrimages to Jerusalem for different festivals and different feasts and things like that. And there was something that they experienced in coming to Jerusalem. There was a unique presence of God that they experienced in coming to Jerusalem. And they sang about that. Man, how awesome is it to come into the presence of God here in Jerusalem? And they celebrated that God rules and reigns right here in the holy city. But in the new covenant, right, the temple of God is the hearts of his people. And Joe talked about this a while back that we see that there is a unique manifestation of God's presence when his people gather for the purpose of worship. And so while we don't make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, right, every year for a particular feast or festival, there is a sense in which we experience the unique presence of God when we are gathered with the saints for the purpose of worship. And so regardless of where we're at, right, if we're here in Clay, Alabama, if we're downtown in Birmingham, if we're in Atlanta, or if we're across the world in Africa, right, we experience God's presence when we gather with his people in a unique way. And uh, Psalm 132 is a psalm, uh, and it's in particular a prayer that's asking God to remember his promises to David. Now, as you recall, God made a covenant with David that he would establish his throne forever. After David, however, we see the Davidic throne. We see the monarchy uh, uh, spiral into sin and apostasy. Until, from all appearances, it, it appears that the monarchy has been completely dissolved, Right? But as we read this psalm, we see we have the privilege of doing so in light of New Testament revelation. And we see the failures of human kings to rule in perfect obedience. And we know that they're setting the stage for the ultimate king, right? Who would always do what the father commanded him, who only did what he saw his father doing, right? Who perfectly obeyed the law. And not only who did that, but who sacrificed himself under the law so that we could be freed from our sins. So, again... When we look at typology in the scriptures, we see it in the similarities, right? Moses was a prophet. Moses was the leader of Israel. Well, Jesus is the greater prophet, and he's the greater leader of Israel, right? David was a king. Jesus is a king. David was a shepherd. Jesus is the good shepherd, 
right? We see it in the similarities. We see it from the lesser to the greater, right? J David was a good king, but he was king over Israel, right? Jesus is a good king, but he's king over all the earth, right? Over the entire universe, over all of creation. So we see it from the lesser to the greater, and we also see it in the differences, right? David was a sinner who, you know, did some pretty terrible things, but Jesus is the ultimate king who never sinned, right? Who lived a perfect life, right? Who perfectly obeyed the law. And he's going to rule and reign in a way that David never could. And so that's the first way we see Christ in the Psalm. This, the second way that we see Christ in the Psalms is prophetically. So we see Christ in the Psalms typologically, but then we also see Christ in the Psalms prophetically. There are several Psalms that speak prophetically of the Messiah, that prophesy several things about the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And there are several Psalms that are specifically fulfilled in the life of Christ. And so we've got a few that we're going to look at. And these Psalms, you can go to the next slide. These Psalms in particular are Psalms that we can see some specific and explicit fulfillment in the life of Christ. And so somebody look up uh, Psalm 1610 for me. Emma, you can do that one. Some, someone look up Psalm 22 one. We got a lot from Psalm 22. And I thought about just reading the whole thing, but it's pretty long, so I didn't want to. We don't want to take up all the time. All right, Logan. Uh, Psalm 22, uh, verses 7 and 8. Casey. Uh, Psalm 22, 16. Kaylee. Psalm 22, 18. Jonathan. Psalm 34, 20. Aiden. Psalm 69, 21. Josiah. And Psalm 118, 22. Josie, I'll let you take that one. All right, who had Psalm 1610? Go ahead and read that for us, Emma. All right, so in this psalm, right, this is a psalm of David. And David is saying, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, which, you know, is kind of an old covenant representation of hell. Obviously, there's some differences, and we don't have time to theologically parse that out. But uh, if that's how you understand it, that's, 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 a fair, that's a fair understanding of it. And what does he say? He says, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your holy one see corruption. Well, David died, didn't he? Yeah, he did. So, did he see corruption? Did his body see corruption? He did. So, in a certain sense, this was true of David, but ultimately it was true of Christ. And in particular, we see it in Acts chapter 2, verses 25 through 31. And I'll read that for us. For, uh, this is from Acts 2. For David says of him, I saw the Lord continually before me, because he is at my right hand, so that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope, because you will not forsake my soul to Hades. Nor let, uh, give your Holy One over to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Man, brothers, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet and he knew what God had sworn to him in an oath to set one of the fruit of his body on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Christ. That he was neither forsaken to Hades, nor did his Holy One see corruption. So, David said this about himself, right? He was speaking truly about himself. God has not abandoned me. God has not let me see corruption. He hasn't let me die. But he was speaking prophetically, and specifically prophetically of the resurrection of Christ. Who had Psalm, uh, Psalm 2, verse 1? 26, verse 1. Yeah, that's what I meant. Sorry. Uh, there you go. 
My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? In the words of my groan. All right, so we see. Right, so we see in the beginning of the psalm, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in Matthew 27, 46, right, we read this, uh, speaking of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud, loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there's something in particular we need to understand about this, this passage, right? Um, uh, Johnny, if, if I were to say, uh, amazing grace, how sweet the sound, what would you think? That saved a wretch like me. That saved a wretch like me, right? Because that's a song, right? And we need to remember the Psalms, this was the hymn book of Israel. These were the songs that they sang to God. So when Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He wasn't simply, right? He wasn't necessarily simply speaking about his current condition. That he had been forsaken by God. But what he was doing was he was bringing to mind in the same way that that opening line of amazing grace, amazing grace, how sweet the sound, right? It brings to mind the rest of the song, right? Jesus was bringing to mind Psalm 22 is what he was doing in, in the presence of his hearers so that they would hear what he was saying and go, oh, this is being, this is being fulfilled right now in our eyes. Now, obviously, they didn't see that because they couldn't. But this is what was being communicated by Jesus is that the content of this psalm is being fulfilled in your very sight. Uh, who had verses 7 and 8 of Psalm 22? Everyone who sees me mocks me. They snare and they shake their heads. He relies on the Lord. Let him rest me. Let the Lord deliver him, since he takes pleasure in him. All right, again, part of Psalm 22, we see that, um, we see that the psalmist is being mocked. He's speaking about, they, they mock me. They say, well, let his God save him. Again, this is specifically fulfilled by the person of Jesus Christ. And in particular, Luke 23, 35, and the people stood by looking at him. And even the rulers were scoffing at him, saying, he saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. And the soldiers also mocked, coming up to him, offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. So again, Jesus is saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that people would understand, so that we would understand the content of the psalm is being fulfilled by Christ. Uh, who had uh, Psalm twenty-two sixteen? For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. Right. So, and this one is super interesting, right? So, this psalm is being written, right? It's a psalm of David, and he says, "These dogs encompass me." He says, "They pierced my hands and feet." You realize this was written hundreds of years before crucifixion was even invented, right? So David prophetically is speaking of being pierced in his hands and feet. Well, who was pierced in his hands and feet? It was Jesus, right? And specifically, again, in Luke 23, verse 33, and when they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him. What did they do there? They pierced his hands and his feet. Again, in fulfillment of Psalm 22. Who had verse 18? Me. Go ahead, read that one for us. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Again, we see that in the life of Christ, that they, the soldiers were casting lots, dividing his garments. They were basically playing dice for it. Right? They were gambling for it, in a, in a manner of speaking. And so, this, David is saying that they did this about him, but ultimately he was pointing prophetically to what happened to Jesus Christ. 
Um, and then who had uh, Psalm 3420? Go ahead and read that one for us. He keepeth all his bones, and not one of them is broken. All right, so there, that, that one's an interesting one, right? It says he keeps all his bones, and none of them are broken. Well, in those days, right, when they would crucify criminals, right, how, how, what was the primary way that these people would die from crucifixion? Uh, no air. No air, right? Suffocation. Right? Because of the way you were hanging, right? You had to push up on your legs to open up your lungs to get enough air to breathe. And so, obviously, as your muscles gave out from uh, fatigue, from pain, right? Eventually, you would just suffocate and die. But sometimes, if it took too long, what they would do is they would go and they'd break the legs of the crucified criminals so that they could no longer push up for air and they would die sooner. And they came, right? They came and they broke the other uh, the other criminals, they broke their legs. And we see that in John 19, verses 32 through 36. We read, So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he, they, he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Again, speaking prophetically in the psalm, right? My, I can count on my bones, they're not broken. Right? It's pointing prophetically to Jesus Christ. Right? They were going to break his legs, but they didn't. Who had um, Psalm 69? Go ahead and read that for us. They gave me poison to food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Again, in John 19, verse 28, um, it says, after, after this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been finished, in order to fulfill the scripture, he said, I am thirsty. And a jar of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine up on a hyssop branch and brought it to his mouth. Therefore, when Jesus had re uh, received the wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. So again, specific prophecy, right? They gave me sour wine, right? Fulfilled by Jesus Christ on the cross. <coughs> and lastly, who had Psalm um, 118, 22? Go ahead and read that for us. All right. So it says the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And Peter, in the book of Acts, uses this as one of his primary points when preaching to the Jews. And uh, in particular, in Acts 4, verse 11, he says, uh, he, speaking of Jesus, right? He says, he is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which has become the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. So again, and we haven't even scratched the surface when it comes to prophecy within the Psalms. But we see it throughout the Psalms that not only does it speak typologically about Christ, right? Not only does it anticipate the coming Messiah, right? Who was the ultimate king, right? Who was the better king, who would rule and reign not only over Israel, but over all the earth. Right? And righteousness and justice. But specifically, we see prophecy about Christ fulfilled in the scriptures. And like I said, there's tons more that we could have done, but we simply don't have, have time today. But at the end of the day, we see Christ in the Psalms, both as the sovereign God and King, and as the anticipated Messiah. And I'm going to end with this quote, and I apologize because I wrote down the quote, and I forgot to write down who said it. Um, so I don't remember where I got it from, but... The important thing is that you know it's not original to me. It might have been Joe. I can't, I can't say one way or the other. But here's what it says. And I really think this, this paints a good picture for us when it comes to viewing the Psalms. They said this. 
Since Jesus is the Lord of the covenant, the Psalms are sung to him. And since Jesus is the servant of the covenant, the Psalms are sung by him. So Jesus is therefore above us as the one to whom we sing, and he is beside us as the one who sings with us in all of our life's experiences. So regardless of where we are in the Psalms, whether we're reading Psalms of Thanksgiving, whether we're reading Kingship Psalms, or Psalms of Amen, we should be able to see Christ as the one to whom we sing and as the one who is beside us, singing with us, uh, experiencing life with us. And hopefully, hopefully I've been able to kind of whet your appetite into uh, digging deeper into the Psalms. Um, and hopefully I've been able to communicate clearly that at the end of the day, it's about the worship of God and it's about the praise and glory of His Son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this evening. Lord, we thank you that you have provided for us. You've provided a, a place to meet. Lord, you've provided uh, climate-controlled rooms. You've provided uh, chairs for us to sit in, lights so we can read your word. You've provided us fellowship in brothers and sisters in Christ here in this room. Lord, we thank you that you have given us the book of Psalms. Lord, and at, at times, while it may seem difficult to sort of parse out what's going on in these psalms, we ultimately know that it's about the worship of you. Not only for who you are, but also for what you have done. What you have done, Lord, in Israel's history, from the calling of Abraham to the return from Babylonian exile, we see that you have worked mightily to prepare a people for yourself and ultimately to bring about the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Lord, who would die for our sins, who would pay the penalty that we deserve so that we would not be treated according to our transgressions, Lord, but that we would experience blessing and fellowship because of what he had done. Lord, I pray for each of these students. I pray that as they, as they go throughout their day, Lord, the rest of their week, as they go throughout uh, the next several months coming into the holiday season, Lord, I pray that if they don't know you, God, that your spirit would begin to work in them so that they would come to a saving knowledge of your son, Jesus. Lord, and if they do know you, God, I pray that you would be ever present in their minds, regardless of the circumstances. I pray in times of plenty, they would look to you and praise you for your provision. I pray in times of distress, they would look to you as the only sovereign deliverer. Lord, in whatever circumstance they find themselves, whether in the peaks or the valleys of life, I pray that they would be characterized, their lives would be characterized by the worship of God. We thank you and praise you for all these things. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.